Welcome to the first episode of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. You might be wondering why you're listening to a podcast that you've never heard of before. Well, before you click the next button on your iPod, computer, or other MP3 player, let me explain. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is a combination of some of the best cycling podcasts on the internet. Each show will bring together some of the most famous voices in cycling for a lively discussion of the current cycling news. You receive this podcast because it was inserted into the feed of your favorite cycling podcast by that show's host. You might be a listener to my show. I'm David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. Or you might be a listener to Cycling News and Views with Carlton Reed. Or the Crank Podcast with Larry Barker. Or a number of other shows that are now associated with The Spokesman. No matter what show you're subscribed to, the host of that show is a current or future participant in The Spokesman and thought that you might be interested to hear what we've put together. In today's show, you'll hear Larry Barker from the Crank Podcast, Carlton Reed from Cycling News and Views Podcast, and me, David, from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast, talking about several different matters related to the world of cycling. So welcome to you, our listeners, and welcome to my fellow spokesman. Hi there. Good afternoon, David. So just so everybody knows, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. Larry's over in Japan, and Carlton's in the UK, so we're all at Coordinating our schedules has been a lot of fun. So welcome and uh, and let's get started. First of all, I, I think that the, the topic that's on everybody's mind in the world of cycling right now is obviously the Floyd Landis affair and doping. And I've gotten a lot of emails and a lot of voicemails on my podcast, and I've heard from a lot of my listeners. But gentlemen, I'd like to hear from you. So Larry, do me a favor. Tell me what your thoughts are about the Floyd Landis affair. Do you think he did it? Uh, what do you think the effect is going to be on cycling? Just, just give me your thoughts. Well, my uh, overall opinion is that, um, I mean, everything else aside, is that there, there's probably a fairly good chance that uh, obviously he, he did do something. Uh, perhaps he's doped, taken testosterone, whatever. What uh, I would like to see happen from this ordeal is um, more of, of certainly something that uh, Carlton has put forth in his petition is a more, you know, a clear and uh, obvious way that they go about testing uh, where it leaves a lot less questions to be raised about the overall process, you know, and certainly in regards to as well as uh, Dick Pound and the way he um, seems to have his outbursts every once in a while, it certainly doesn't help the situation. And uh, I just, I would like to see a, uh, a more, well, how can you say, organized method of going about that, I suppose. Carlton, what are, you, what are your thoughts on the present situation? I'm agnostic on Floyd himself. I really don't have an opinion on whether he did or he didn't take uh, a patch and put it on his uh, testicles or however he's proposed to have, to have uh, taken on testosterone. But I really do think the, the media hoo-ha, the dick pound hoo-ha, is just out of all proportion to A, what he's done, uh, claimed to have done, and B, it's just, it just seems so unfair that if, if you are an athlete, a high-profile athlete in a high-profile race, you run the risk of having a false positive. And this is never discussed uh, by the likes of Dick Pound or the mass media. And you are just hung, drawn, and quartered before you're allowed to get any of your defense uh, on board. And I just find that very unfair and very unusual that in this modern day and age, we, we don't actually have the, 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 
rigorous double-blind testing in multiple labs, certainly on these high-profile cases, when it comes down to just, say so, a one lab, which we all know hasn't had the, the, the best of histories, not just the last two years with Lance Armstrong, but with other high-profile athletes, this is a lab where we ought to have a bit more examination of, of where they're coming from, what are their methods, perhaps they're fantastic, they're clean, they're wonderful, their science is, is, is brilliant. But if so, how can they have somebody there leaking information? That, that is one protocol that's being busted. And if they're busting that protocol, any lawyer can pick holes in that lab. So in future for years, then other athletes may get away with uh, doping because their lawyers are able to pick holes in this particular lab. So the whole system needs to be overhauled, maybe not across the board, but certainly for high-profile cases. So, so for you, Carlton, it comes down to not just whether or not he did it, because of course none of us know, uh, but it comes down to whether or not the, the lab is handling the situation properly, whether they're following the rules, and whether or not our testing is really up to modern standards. Because as I understand it, the tests that they're using for testosterone are, are 20 or 30 years old. So for you, it comes down to the lab itself and the way in which the entire situation has been handled. Is that a pretty fair thing to say? Yeah, maybe not. I'm not really picking on this particular lab, even though this lab, you really can pick holes in this lab. Um, it does come down on the system that, that the system, people assume that this is a perfect system, these are perfect tests, these give you 100% accurate results the moment they're done, that athlete is guilty, no need for due process, end of story. This is just not true. These tests are fallible. Um, and for just one guy uh, to be tested in the Tour de France, when there should have actually been just on the, the, the law of how many failures should you have with this many athletes and this many tests, sh there should have been six or so uh, failures, at least two of which should have been false positives, the other ones worth exploring. We've only found one. On one day, one rider, it, it, it just it stinks. And... and the whole of cycling can be brought down by this. The whole of athletics, any sport can be brought down by tests that aren't actually quite as cut and dried as, as people who aren't deep into this find. And, and when I launched this, this petition, I'm, I'm very much, um, it's not pro-Floyd, it's not anti-Floyd. It's just let's look at the, the procedures here and realize that it's not cut and dried. Yet I've had so much abuse from, from people both on the, the petition and off the petition emailing me who getting their facts wrong who don't seem to know uh, what the tests do and, and, and don't find and I'm also getting on the other side getting quite a few emails from from drug testers who are saying y you've got it spot on here these are not 100% um, accurate tests we aren't all uh, as squeaky clean as everybody likes to see and there are glaring faults in the system so this being the case, how can we crucify one guy when we haven't, we haven't heard the full story here? I want to get back to the petition in a moment because I think it's interesting. There's, there's a couple of petitions going, going around right now, including yours. But first, I think it's probably fair for me to tell everybody what, what my opinion is. And, and if, if you've listened to me in the past, I think that everyone is pretty clear on the fact that I look at doping 100% as cheating. 
and that those who dope and those who who try to get around any rule, whether it's in cycling, marathoning, uh, or just in life, I, I I have no patience for them, and they need to to get out of the way and let and let people who actually follow rules do their jobs. I, I've gotten emails and, and phone calls from people who have said. Well, gee, who are you to second-guess these people who are trying to support their families and who are going up against an establishment of a Peloton, most of whom are cheaters, most of whom do use doping in one way or another, but seem to be able to get around a lot of these tests simply because they have better doctors? Who am I, they they tell me, to, sec- to second-guess them, to tell them that they can't make a living this way. And, and, and my opinion is, until the rules are changed, until doping is allowed, until they allow EPO in the sport, until they allow synthetic testosterone or blood doping, it is cheating, clear-cut cheating, and those people should not be allowed in cycling. Now, when it comes to Floyd, there's a gray area here. I don't know the man, but... I look at at least his public persona, and unless he's as good of an actor as he is a cyclist, I want to believe him. You know, he comes from this this very religious, very wholesome background. He appears to be a very genuine and honest guy, and as a result of that, I want to believe him. He's come out with some very lame excuses, and he keeps changing his excuses, and so that makes it difficult to believe him. And two positives on two separate samples make it difficult to believe him. So when, Carlton, you talk about a false positive, we really had, if it, it, let's assume for a moment, hypothetically, that it is false. We had two false positives then, uh, both on his A sample and his B sample, both of which were tested separately at different times. And so that would be, that's sort of coincidental. Now, one of the things that he said recently on a talk show here in the U.S. is that maybe he ingested something that had testosterone in it or caused his testosterone level to be elevated. Um, I find that a little bit hard to believe. But nevertheless, I want to give him the benefit of a doubt, and I do want due process to go through. Uh, and, you know, here in the U.S., we always say innocent until proven guilty, but that's not necessarily true in the media, is it? Uh, a lot of times... In the media, people are, are, as you said, drawn and quartered be, before any, all of the evidence is ever in. So, again, I want to believe him, but it's, it's getting more and more difficult every day. Larry, you, you mentioned, I saw it on, on Crank, that about these, these petitions that are going around. Have you gotten any emails or any feedback from uh, your readers, your listeners, uh, about these petitions and, and what they think about them? Yeah, I mean, I've received a few emails in regards to and one of the key things, and I think it kind of contributes to what Carlton has mentioned is, is what is what gains to this uh, whole media circus that takes place, is the breach of confidentiality that seems to come about from that one specific lab. And, uh, I mean, even even the release of his name or, or an athlete's name prior to the B sample being completed, and then you, you get the whole whirlwind starting up. Uh, I think, which kind of also leads to the, you know, the drawn and quartered 
situation coming on and with certain procedures in place which uh, as per se is mentioned in this uh, in the petition I think that Carlton is is pushing forth that uh, again a more organized and structured method of testing or at least keeping the names uh, silent until there until uh, it's 100% proven with a second B sample then uh, I think you're gonna get this kind of situation coming forth and I think people are getting kind of fed up with the whole breaches that are, are happening in that regard and of course I have in the Lance situation, I guess, uh, before with that same lab as well. And uh, I, I don't know if it's per se down to the, you know, the PR of the teams releasing a name or the labs, but I think they need to try to somehow put a cap on it so that it doesn't get into these kinds of situations, um, ending up in the same thing that we have now with Floyd Landis. So Carlton, t- tell us about the petition, why you started it, what sort of a, a response you've gotten to it, and, and really what it's all about. Well, I wrote it quite a few days before I, I, I put it online and I was reading around the subject. It, it's been taking me away from my day job which is not really on, on doping at all. It should be on, on, on doing what bike shops think about uh, the world. But the whole, the whole media circus that's gone on and is continuing on, it's just, it, it drags me in because it does harm cycling. Um, it, it does take out sponsors from the sport, all of which are, are, are bad news. For instance, in the previous month of my, my trade mag, I had this wonderful story about, isn't it great, that iShares are coming into the sport. And then the next month, oh, oh they're no longer in the sport. Their three-year deal is out. So all of these things do harm cycling. And whether or not one particular athlete has or hasn't taken uh, drugs, I'm still I'm not that bothered um, about Floyd Landis himself, so that the, the petition is very much aimed at, at the whole system of how a whole sport can be taken down. Potentially, I'm not saying it is, but potentially by a rogue lab or one person in that lab. And the, the rogue aspect doesn't have to be somebody injecting um, a, a bit of uh, false chemicals into a test tube. This can just be they're not following protocols. They are not keeping uh, client confidentiality. And that means there's a loophole. Any lawyer can come in and say, this lab isn't doing this correctly, so you can't trust this lab. If you're a good lawyer, you can get the, the, the biggest doper in the world off on that alone. So this lab needs to be sorted out. If WADA isn't criticizing externally and internally this lab, well, none of its, its labs can be trusted because confidentiality is extremely important in these cases because it can take a whole individual's um, earnings away. It can damage uh, the credibility of a whole sport. This is more important than Dick Pound's ego. So that being the case, that this whole doping protocols and all these different labs need to be sorted out and, and protocols adhered to. They haven't been adhered to here and people can get off from doping. And if we all want to stop doping, we need to have stronger labs. If we need stronger labs, we need water to impose its own rules. And, and I suppose that, that goes into what I was saying earlier. If, if we're going to say that the cyclists have to follow certain rules and we're going to suspend them as soon as they're even suspected of having broken those rules, as in the case of, of the whole Operacion Puerto scandal before the, the Tour de France and having said to all these cyclists, you can't be in the tour because you're simply under suspicion. If we're going to say that they have to follow those rules, then, of course, the labs have to 
have to be kept to the same set of standards, whereby if there's any suspicion that they're not following the rules, well, then that lab has to be excluded from the whole process until that lab is able to prove that they are following the rules, that they are following the protocol. So I think that that's a really good point and something that, uh, that everybody should, should be looking at. But, but you mentioned something, and that was about iShares and the fact that they were going to be coming in and, and uh, being a sponsor in the world of cycling. Let's look at the fallout from this whole doping scandal. We've got uh, the Astana team, which used to be called Liberty Seguros because Liberty Seguros pulled out and, and, and became Astana. We've got uh, Phonak having completely folded now. The team no longer exists anymore. iShares has decided that they're not going to sponsor. Skoda has pulled out of their sponsorship of the Tour de France. Ford has decided that they no longer want to sponsor the Tour of Georgia. This is having a huge effect uh, on the world of cycling, and as well as on fans' opinions. What what are you hearing about that, Larry? Well, uh, for one, I mean, the, the one thing that uh, I get from uh, several people is their word of it having a kind of steamrolling effect. I mean, things are just getting started now. Um, can you imagine what will happen should, uh, say, Landis be stripped of the Tour de France title? And I think you're going to see a lot more sponsors basically running for the hills. And it's not going to be a good thing at all for, for both professional and, and anyone below that as well. Because, uh, you know, professional is supposed to be where all the sponsors want to put their money. And if people don't want to even want to put their money there, I mean, it's going to, it's, I think it's going to trickle down through, through the multi, sorry, through the many layers of cycling, not just professional. Carlton, what about you? What are you hearing about fans and sponsors and, and what the future of professional cycling may be as a result of what's been a really bad year? I think we'd have to measure exactly what does cycling get out of all these external sponsorships. And, and, and me, you, anybody who cycles, probably not a great deal. So it comes down to you know, the, the, the PR exposure for cycling is, is maybe good for us as cyclists on the road, but then probably not. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether there's any mainstream sponsors in, in cycling for, for our day-to-day uh, getting out on the road, but we do like to have cycling out there as a mainstream sport because we like it and we want to see cycling on on mainstream TV channels. So that's when it matters, um, and and that is being harmed because uh, lots of different sponsors are pulling out both both in in the UK from smaller races which wouldn't probably get uh, televised, but that they're, they're coming out and some of them are citing. Uh, the doping issues, so it does harm that form of of very very visible cycling. Yeah, but and, but, but uh, beyond that can't be good. But beyond that, wouldn't you say that it also ha- could have the potential effect of actually lowering the salaries of the professional cyclists? Let's face it, a lot of people get into cycling because they love it. Some people get into cycling because they're talented and they realize that they can make a living at this, but but in any case, they all make a living from it and they all want to make a nice living. And the sponsorship money of the teams, the sponsorship of the events, is what feeds these guys' families. So if the sponsors start pulling out, will we start seeing less talented riders in the sport? For sure. People need uh, to, to make a living. And I want to see cycling as as big a sport as possible, <laughs> but on the, the the same side, if if 
for instance, in, in soccer, you get astronomical uh, wages, and that's when the, the, the cheating does come in and the you know, falling down uh, on the football pitch, the soccer pitch, because it's, it's huge monies involved. So if you're looking at the wages of two or 3,000 professional cyclists, well, my heart doesn't really bleed that much. Um, for the, the these people, but of course it does bring people through the sport, and it it brings new talent in when there is high wages there. But it does get a point uh, that do you really want cyclists to get such high wages? Because well, where has the doping coming from? Come from? It's because there's high wages in cycling, probably. So it's a it's a catch twenty two situation, I think. Well, and and along those lines, one of the things that that people keep asking me about is. What culpability do the teams have? Now, remember, the, these teams are beholden to their sponsors. They they want to show these sponsors that that they they want to show them results. And there's definitely an undercurrent right now. A lot of people who are feeling that the teams are are much more involved in the doping than anyone's letting on, and that who's getting punished are the individual racers, but that perhaps team managers and team doctors really know about the doping, encourage the doping, may even help the riders or, or, or push them to dope, yet the teams themselves, other than, say, Phonak that's now folded, the teams themselves aren't getting punished. What do you think about that, Larry? I uh, certainly think that uh, many of the teams, um, and there, there has to be a certain level of knowledge that... Uh, that the management has uh, of those teams, it, it only makes sense when you get three or four riders, say, from one team being caught, and the amount of money that it must take to, well, keep a, uh, a regime of doping uh, going on, that uh, it, it only has to be common knowledge, or at least maybe, you know, someone turns a blind eye to it taking place. But uh, I think now that it has well, started to blow up as of the past two months. I think what you're getting is you're getting many teams kind of cutting the strings and leaving the the cyclist out to dry, so to speak. Um, that's really that's that's what my opinion is, at least. Carlton, any thoughts on that? Well, the teams are being harmed. They're they're going down left, right, and center. <laughs> so it, it's telling teams, look, if you have a, a a problem with doping in your team, sooner or later you will be caught and you will be brought down because sponsors will pull out. So from now on, I think a lot of this has got to be water under the bridge. From now on, what will teams do? If that was their, their previous policy, it can't possibly be their policy going forward. They can see what happens. Well, again, you know, one of the things, not to disagree with you here, I'm not so sure that it's going to be their policy going forward to discourage doping uh, because there's a lot of people who say, well, it, everybody's doping in cycling and it just comes down to who has the better doctor, whose doctor is better able to hide it with knowing, you know, going back to the testing, knowing the the limits of the existing testing if you've got a good enough doctor who can find his his or her way around that that testing, well then you know go for it, dope as much as David, you want. Can I, David, can I just jump in there? Absolutely. Because you, you're saying they in this 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 strange phrase that often gets bandied around as though yes everybody's doping in cycling, and we say it. Well, 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 they could be wrong. I think they very much possibly are wrong because it's a generalization. There's, there's something that Magnus Backstead, um, who's a, a, a 
he's based in Wales, but he, he obviously doesn't uh, ride for a Welsh team. He's a, he's a Swede. But one of his quotes, and I'm, I'm just going to pick it out here, he was asked, you know, do you see drugs all the time in cycling? And now he's a pro rider. These are the people who we should be asking, is, are, are drugs seen everywhere? And uh, he says, these now are his quotes. Do you think anyone you work with takes drugs, smokes dope, pops some pills in a club? If the answer is yes, do they freely walk around your workplace offering their drug of choice around the office? Of course they don't, because they would be out on their ass quicker than they could say, drug me. It's the same for us pro riders. Our office just happens to be a big bunch of bike riders, and people, people don't ride around offering the latest performance enhancing drugs. Yes, do, drugs do exist, just like, like they do in all walks of life, sport just mirrors society. So I don't think there's this, this huge industry. If, I'm, 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 this is no longer uh, Magnus quoting here. There's not this huge industry. I don't think everybody is doping in cycling. There are some high-profile people who've been caught doing it. But you actually, when you look, and this is, this is what Phil Liggett told me the other day, when, when you actually look at how many people have been done, for drugs and cycling. It's not actually that many. And yes, some people could say that's because they're very good at uh, masking all these, these, these drugs they're taking. Or it could mean drugs are not as prevalent as all us cyclists like to think they are. So it comes down to asking the pro riders, are they asked to take drugs? Some teams, it appears, it might have been the case because there is a culture there Lots and lots of uh, tests have been done on certain individuals. Other teams, it appears to, to me, have got absolutely no history of uh, institutionalized drug taking. So perhaps it's just a few rogue teams. And perhaps some of those rogue teams are now no longer going to be with us. And I, I don't want to wish names, but one of them has just gone down. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I, when, when I was using the they, uh, I don't want you to think that uh, that I was saying that everybody in cycling is doping. But I, I do have to agree with the people who say that there certainly are some people who who would try to use the drugs for the competitive advantage because they feel that they have to. Um, I don't think it's right. And 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 I and I think that Phil Leggett is, is right, of course, also that that only a few have been have really been been nailed for doping. Um, but there is, unfortunately, as a result of these few high-profile cyclists who have been nailed, there is now, unfortunately, a reputation. I mean, you see it all the time. People know that you're in the cycling world, and both of you, and, and I'm sure they come up to you and they say, "Oh, there you go, those dirty cyclists." But they don't say that about. Uh, you know, you don't you don't hear about it in some other sports, and 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 unfortunately, uh, now we are seeing it in other sports. We're seeing it in track and field. Uh, we're seeing it in in football and in, in various other sports. But for some reason, it's cycling that's getting the black eye, and I think mm. that that that's the unfortunate thing. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> interestingly enough, let's take a guy like Tyler Hamilton. Tyler's just about to come off a two-year suspension for doping. Uh, and he went through the entire process, every appeal that he could. And when all was said and done, the, the, the suspension w was upheld. He's not allowed to, to participate in most cycling events. So he goes this weekend, he participates in, in the Mount Washington Hill Climb. I don't know if you're both familiar with it, but it is an extremely difficult race up a very, very steep mountain in New Hampshire. And he wins. Is there anything to be made about that? 
I, I don't know if it's entirely appropriate. I mean, I'm trying to remember back. Was his? I, I remember, and of course, with all these uh, the, the media rumors that started to circulate when uh, this whole Spain thing kicked off a few months ago, was his name not brought up again, yet again, in that operation? You know, I think you're right. I think, and I don't want to misspeak and get in trouble, but I, I, hmm. I seem to remember that his name coming up uh, in some way. Yeah, and and the only reason I had mentioned that is because I remembered about the same time was when he, they had ruled he was allowed to keep the gold medal, was it not? That's correct. Yeah, so, I mean, given there, there's so much um, uncertainty, I think, around his situation, um, I mean, you, you've got guys being pulled out of, of races who have not yet been, you know, um, proven guilty, and uh, he has pretty much been proven guilty uh, from what it looks like, and there is still ongoing uncertainty about uh, whether he's stayed clean. Uh, so I'm not uh, entirely, uh, well, I don't think it's appropriate that he's, he's allowed to race still uh, until that ban is over, and, and then especially if, if he's still been doping. Carlton mentioned something a few moments ago, uh, and that was that Tyler was actually asked not to, to participate in a race earlier this year. It was back in, in March where he was going to be racing in Boulder, Colorado. And because of the suspension, the UCI said, whoa, wait a minute. You, you can't let Tyler participate in this because he's still banned from, from cycling. Uh, nevertheless, he was allowed to, to race in this one because it's not an officially sanctioned event. Um, Carlton, any thoughts on, on the fact that he, he won this race? I mean, do you think people were thinking, oh, there's Tyler, he must still be doping? It's, it's not good for cycling, for sure, that uh, Tyler Storms often wins this race. Um, whether he's doping or not in this particular race, who knows. But for sure, if, if you're convicted and you've gone through due process and you've still been thrown out, then for sure, you, you just can't race again. Okay. As long as you've gone through due process. Right. All right. Well, I think I think we've done doping to death. I th I think you'd probably agree. I want to move on to a couple more topics, but but before we do, I think it would be interesting for the listeners to know who who we are and how we got into cycling and and how we got into commentating on it and podcasting and writing about it. So, um if you don't mind, I'll I'll go first. As a lot of you know, I am the host and the producer of a podcast called The Fredcast Cycling Podcast. Uh, so-called because of so-called Freds in the world of cycling and, and my desire to, to retake the term Fred and make it instead of a, a term of derision, uh, a, a term of endearment. And so far it seems to be working, which is kind of nice. And I noticed I was mentioned on Wikipedia as having done that. So that was fun. Mm -hmm. I got into cycling almost immediately after after college. Uh, when I got When I graduated from the university, I got a job working for a fairly large Japanese trading company that was uh, in the cycling business, working with uh, OEMs and parts suppliers, putting them together to get their, their bikes built, whether that was in Japan, Taiwan, or China, or wherever, and then helping them ship those, those finished products as well as the replacement parts all around the world. And we also owned a couple of brand names, uh, some, some brand names that, that you would well know. From there, I started my own company where I was helping Asian manufacturers who made very excellent aftermarket products but had no idea how to market those products to American or European consumers. I was helping them create brands, um, again, brands that you would know. And one of the, probably one of, one of my famous success stories was a brand that didn't exist until I got involved 
and that's Full Speed Ahead, FSA. I helped launch that brand, create the image, create the company, and it, I love seeing where it's gotten to today. It's fantastic. Got out of cycling a number of years ago because I was offered the opportunity to work in my family's manufacturing business, and I've been doing that ever since. But then became a roadie about four or five years ago when somebody close to me was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and I decided that I would participate in what we have here in the States, the MS-150 rides. There's about 100 of them across the U.S. to raise money in the fight against MS and have been a top fundraiser every year in that, thanks to generous friends and family. And when I became a roadie, I definitely became a Fred. And when I heard about podcasting, I went looking for a cycling podcast that appealed to me, one that talked about news, one that talked about uh, product reviews and, and ride reviews and upcoming rides. I couldn't find one, and so I decided to create one, and it's become insanely popular, which is a lot of fun. And so that's how I got involved, and uh, for anyone who's listening, my podcast is located at www.thefredcast.com. Carlton, tell me about Bike Biz and, and how you got involved and, and, and what your magazine's about and what your podcast is about. Sure. Well, Bike Biz, uh, as the name I guess suggests, is about the business of uh, cycling. So it's a it's a British trade magazine that comes out um, every month, and it has a, a website which um, is much more international because websites are, and that's bikebiz.com. And uh, I started the magazine and the website about uh, four years ago, uh, having previously. Um, edited trade magazines um, for the past 20 years, in fact, I've been doing this. And uh, I sold uh, Bike Biz. It was actually called Bicycle Business at the time, but uh, the website was always bikebiz.com. And I sold both to a, a publishing company in December, and now I'm a wage slave again for, for them. But I also do my own thing, so that the podcast is actually my own. And uh, I also do other websites uh, for the UK government. I do a website called bikeforall.net, uh, and I do a whole load of um, freelance journalism for newspapers, not on bikes, on, would you believe, and uh, on travel. And I got into cycling when I was 17, and in the UK, that's when you can um, legally start learning to drive. And I've always been very contrary. So whatever my friends are doing or whatever... My, my peer group are doing, I'll kind of do the opposite. So I, when everybody was talking about revving up and how to change gear and, and how to start driving, I thought, this is the time when I'm going to take up cycling. And so I did, and I, I started touring. And uh, I spent two years abroad uh, cycling the, the, in the Middle East and loved it just so much. Uh, when I came back to the UK and uh, went to university, I hooked up with a bike mag who happened to be in, in, in my hometown and uh, tried to get a back issue in order to learn about some products which I'd seen in the previous month's mag. And uh, they said, we've just sacked our ads, so would you like to do a bit of freelance journalism for us? And I said yes, and it, it went from there, which was 20-odd uh, years ago, and I've just always loved cycling. Um, since then, and I'm now getting my kids into it as well, which is, is, is really gratifying. Well, one day we're going to have to do a show on, on uh, bicycle touring then. It sounds like you have a lot of experience with that. I've, 
it's really nice now that that I can get my kids into bike touring because it's it's been on the back burner. And I used to go every single year. I used to spend three months doing some desert somewhere in the world, Kalahari, Sahara. I've done lots of American deserts, and since having kids, you, you can't take three-year-olds to a desert. <laughs> so um, they're just about getting to the stage where we're, we're doing our first um, family tours together. So there's three little ones, and uh, I've got a boy of eight and two girls of six, and they're doing 45, 50 miles a day, all on their own bikes, and really so much into it. It's wonderful. So hopefully I'll train them up, and we can all go off and do desert rides in, in, within the next four or five years. Um, that's going to put my uh, my ten and thirteen year olds to shame. I'm going to have to make sure they hear about this. So, Larry, tell tell me about your experience. How you, how you got into cycling and, and and why you started Crank? Well, certainly, uh, David. What uh, probably as as many people do, I, I pretty much started off uh, getting well. The seeds of cycling were kind of sown when I was about nine years old and cycling around the neighborhood uh, type stuff. But uh, as I went through my teens, I partook in uh, well many amateur type road races and so forth and uh, kept up with that until about maybe I was 17 or 18 so I kind of uh, considered myself a roadie up until that point kind of uh, as you know the same type of cycling that you're into David but um, from that point on you know I'm kind of the opposite of a Carlton Carlton experience and uh, I pretty much uh, discovered the car and uh, friends and social life and all that kind of stuff that uh, teenagers often get limbered with and uh, I stopped cycling up until I had the point when the late 90s when I moved uh, to London. Now when I moved to London, uh, and again I do have to apologize to, <laughs> to Carlton for this, but it was the public transportation system that I had to thank for uh, putting me back on the road pretty much in the, in the England because uh, I had so much frustration out of trying to use the system. Overall, it's a great system, but um, the routes I was going and the way I had to get to work, I just found it was far, far better, and I would cut maybe you know 45% of the time off my journey by hopping on the bike as opposed to using the tubes and, and using uh, the, uh, the buses. So I started back in, I guess, when I was about 27, and uh, pretty much doing commuting and uh, around London to work and whatnot, and enjoy rides on the weekends. And then it kind of spiraled from there. Got into touring a few years later, uh, as uh, Carlton's done, not not to the same uh, extent as him. Two years, but uh, you know, I did one month here, one month there, and and I found it. Uh, pretty much so enjoyable and a completely different experience to what I had on, uh, on you know, the usual fly somewhere for two week type holidays. And uh, I love the experience so much that uh, when we decided to move down here to Japan, I was considering doing, uh, well, some kind of cycle tour company down here. But, uh, you know, as uh, as things progress and my career obviously is uh, is not in this area, so I kind of have to stick to IT uh, in order to keep a, a steady income. So that's why I decided, and I've, since I've been in IT, I've always kind of enjoyed sites like dig.com, which is, uh, you know, Crank is an obvious, obvious uh, similarity to that. But, um, you know, I back then, uh, Crank, or sorry, Dig was not doing any kind of sports. And I really, really wanted to see somewhere where we could go as cyclists and have a similar kind of uh, setup and somewhere to discuss, vote, and that kind of thing. So that kind of brought about crank.com, and the podcast just kind of was a result of that. And uh, these days, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get back into, I mean, my health is still recuperating from my decision to stop when I was 18, but uh, I want to go down the same kind of road that you're on at the moment, and I'm trying to get myself uh, training to do my first century, 
But uh, as things progress, I'm not sure if I'm going to have the time to do that, but I would absolutely love to get back uh, into that kind of cycling. But as, uh, as the moment stands, I am currently, I guess I consider myself more of a commuter and a touring cyclist. Excellent. So we all have, have, have sort of varied but similar backgrounds. So that, that it, it's, it's interesting. And one of the things that you mentioned there, Larry, was public transportation and the need to get on the road in, in, when you were in England. And, and that really brings up our next story. And that is the Daniel Cadden case in England. And uh, I thought, Carlton, since you're our resident Brit, you might be able to introduce it and, and tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. It's actually going mainstream across here as well. It, it, it was very much just cyclists were talking about it uh, last week, but now it's just gone into the, the Guardian newspaper. Quite a big piece. So it, it'll filter out and, and get bigger from there in this country. Uh, Daniel Cadden is uh, a cyclist, not a slow cyclist uh, in any way, shape or form. He's, he's pretty quick. He was going down um, a hill on a, a very fast uh, road in... in uh, near Telford, which is kind of near Wales um, in uh, England, and uh, there were two cars behind him, and he was coming up towards uh, a traffic island, a roundabout, and he decided to block those two cars from overtaking him because he felt it was too dangerous for them to overtake at this particular part of this, this fast stretch of road. So he quite legally, as, 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 as most people would uh, assume, and certainly all the guidance would say this, he blocked uh, those, those motorists from coming past him. However, they did overtake him. And I'm not too sure road rules are else around the world, but in, in the UK, if there's a solid white line painted down the middle of the road, you are not allowed to, to overtake um, on, on those kind of uh, roads. You're allowed to overtake a cyclist who's doing 10 miles an hour, apparently, or any object that's moving 10 miles an hour, you're allowed to overtake on a solid white line. But more than that, you're not allowed to overtake. So these two motorists overtook Daniel Cadden, who was doing at least 20, he says. And there was a police car, two cars behind these, these cars who were breaking the law. And instead of the police car or the policeman then saying, right, these two, let's book these two drivers, they've just broken the law, the police car let those two drivers go and booked the cyclist. And the police said he was, uh, they were using a, a, a road traffic offence of, um, he was in effect obstructing, in inverted commas, the traffic. When it came to, to court, everybody thought, this is going to be thrown out. These are just uh, police with too much time on their hands. This is, is not going to get through. But the, the very flamboyant and uh, rather interestingly attired judge, who didn't seem to have the greatest uh, grasp of, of knowledge of, of, of road laws, because he just he ignored every single one, um, decided that he would change what the police said and, and say, well, that cyclist had a choice of going on the cycle path, which was on the opposite end of the road, was strewn with glass, wasn't the cleanest, would have been extremely dangerous for Daniel to get across there, and wasn't a direct route. So the judge said, well, because he had that choice, uh, we're going to fine him. And there was all sorts of experts in the court who said, well, no, the advice is you, you block the traffic. You don't have to use a psychopath if you don't want to. Boom, 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 boom. But the judge just ignored all of that and fined the cyclist. All of which is, so what? Because it's not 
a, t a legal precedent because it's a, it's a district judge has made this um, this particular judgment. However, it, it sets off all sorts of alarm bells to cyclists in the UK because our law codes for driving, it's called the Highway Code, uh, is being revised at the moment. And one of the, the stipulations that has been smuggled in there by uh, the, the agency that does this for the government is that where there's a cycle path, you must use it uh, for a cyclist. And it, this is being fought tooth and nail by cyclists who quite rightly say, well, if there's a cycle path there, we may use it if it's suitable. But as we all know, lots and lots of cycle paths are not suitable. And so some we don't want to use, and uh, they will fall by the wayside. But this ruling by this judge marries into this. And so if this judge gets away with uh, what he's done, potentially the highway code might tell all cyclists in future to, to go on cycle paths. So there is an appeal has been lodged. And I would say there's a 95% chance of this, this, this wacky judgment being overturned because it, it ignored so many other factors. But in the UK, it, it still shows how motorists are given uh, the edge in these kind of cases. And uh, it kind of makes cyclists feel second-class citizens. And it also ties in uh, with the fact that the, the driver who killed four cyclists uh, in Wales uh, in the new year got away with a, a derisory fine and some points on his license. So there seems to just be this one rule for motorists, one rule for cyclists, and, and cyclists kick up a fuss about that. Sorry, I have to ask. I mean, th this is a very serious subject, but I have to ask what you mean by saying that the judge was interestingly dressed. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I've just read all of the... the um, the literature from people who were in court and who just couldn't believe that justice uh, works this way. The, I think they, do you know George Melly, the jazz? Does that mean anything to you? No, unfortunately, no, but go on. Okay, he's a very, very flamboyantly dressed, flowery shirts, jazz player, uh, who, when a judge dresses flamboyantly, like, there's nothing wrong in that, of course there's not. But it does bring into question maybe some of these decisions because judges are meant to be solid, staid, conservative individuals who can look at issues from both sides and then come up with a judgment. When somebody is flamboyantly dressed and then this went right the way through to virtually everything he was wearing, well, maybe his decisions aren't going to be as flowery and as interesting as his attire. And in this case, and in actually previous cases, this judge has made some incredibly bizarre um, judgments. And then you can then just say, well, if he's making these bizarre judgments in and, and these cases, this judgment here is going to be overturned like his other bizarre judgments. So his attire comes into a little bit of, of, of color of, of maybe this is where this judge is coming from. Okay, got it. You know, here in the United States, the at least I can tell you, here in California, a cyclist has every right to do exactly what Daniel Cadden did, and that is to, to take over the lane. If, if you're in a situation, even if you've got a bike lane on the street, a painted lane just for, for cyclists, if that bike lane is 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 full of dirt and debris and potholes and things like that, the cyclist has every right not to ride in the bike lane. And if for some reason 
the cyclist feels that the safest thing to do is to take over the entire lane, despite the fact that there are cars behind him. He does have that right to do that. And, and, and there's, there's nobody who's going to say that they have to ride on a bike path, even if it, if it exists. Now, that doesn't mean that as the cyclist, you won't possibly have a run-in with a motorist as a result. I've certainly had that happen where I'm riding, and, and in, just like in Cadden's case, I'm doing 20 miles an hour on the road, and there's a bike path which is not safe for me to ride on because there's people pushing their babies in strollers or they're walking their dogs or their little children are walking around. It's just not a safe place for me to be riding. Nevertheless, the motorist will pull up next to me extremely close and explain to me in, in flowery language why it is that, that I should get my you-know-what off the road. And so now I've never gotten a fine for it, and I've never heard of it, and that's why this case is so troubling because uh, it just doesn't seem right under the circumstances that, that Cadden would have gotten stopped and would have gotten fined, and I think you're right. I think they should have gone after the motorists instead. Larry, what's it like riding in Japan? I've been to Japan several times. I used to work for a Japanese company, and I know that <laughs> I know what the roads are like there, and I know what the the drivers can be like there. Things can can be very narrow. What's it like cycling there, and what are the rules for cyclists there? Certainly. Well, uh, to consider still, I am uh, well. I'm still feeling my way around uh, this area, but um, I'm luckily I'm not in uh, central Tokyo. I'm actually in, I guess, what may well considered suburb, obviously, but uh, I'm maybe about 20 miles outside of Tokyo. So it's not exactly the same kind of situation as uh, you know as being in the central city. But uh, in terms of my experience here so far, I find, uh, especially when I compare it, I mean. Like I said, I, I kind of stopped in my in my years back in Canada, but between London and Tokyo, the at least the the uh, behavior of the drivers are on a completely opposite end of the scale. Um, I don't get honked at. I don't get things thrown at me. I don't get swerved at. I don't get cursed at. It's it's just a whole different experience doing commuting in this city, and I think it's a lot to do with maybe the. I mean, as you you've been here, you know, there's a little bit of a different. Um, different uh, way they carry themselves. I think, you know, if, if someone kind of loses it, it's considered kind of, um, you know, a dishonor, really. And you don't get the same kind of behavior that uh, you get back in London. And, uh, I mean, on the side of uh, cycle lanes and whatnot, um, you, I, there's not as many here. And, uh, in fact, I do a lot of my rides around the, the rivers around here. And uh, the rules are a bit different. I mean, as I've mentioned, I think I mentioned on my podcast a few times, um, in London, it's kind of weird going from from a cycling experience where you are lambasted if you cycle on the on the sidewalk or pavement as they call it in the UK but uh, down here it is common practice and in fact in a lot of spots you're supposed to do that and uh, it's it's really something to see because you see these masses of people with cyclists kind of weaving in and out of them and you you can think of the other areas you've cycled in back in the UK you just don't see that kind of thing so it, it really is an eye-opening experience but it, it's a great one at that I think one of the things that, that Carlton mentioned that's, that's also troubling is, is the fines that motorists get for infractions, if you will, against cyclists. It's, it's, it's almost as if, you know, in some ways, they get a wink and a nod. Yeah, I realize you killed four people, but here, take your, your, your fine, which is, you know, less than a thousand US dollars, and, and, you know, maybe a couple of points on your license, maybe your insurance costs you a little bit more every year, but yeah, okay, four people are dead. I think that 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 at some point, 
I'm hoping that the laws will change and, and the eyes of the law will change in the way that cyclists are treated because it is dangerous no matter where you are, whether you're in London or you're in Tokyo or you're in Los Angeles or you're in the middle of our next story I'll talk about in a moment, in the middle of Kansas. No matter where you are, cyclists are still second-class second citizens on the road. People still don't see us, and if they do, they, they almost ignore us or panic when they see us. And then if they hurt us, they end up with a tiny fine. And I think that, that at some point I'm hoping that's going to change. And I don't know if, if it's going to be as a result of the, of the Cadden case or whether it's going to be as a result of the Wales case or something else that's going to happen. But I'm hoping that that changes. And, and Carlton, I don't know. Are, are you seeing that, that these two cases are coming together and that there's a groundswell for looking at changes in the law? Well, here in, in the UK, we are part of Europe, and uh, one of the, the things that the European community is trying to do, that it's something called harmonization, where they try and bring all the laws of all the differing um, states, bring them into line with each other, and there's something called the EU, it's a very boring title, unfortunately, but it's the EU Fifth Motoring Directive, and that would make all EU states, all European states, have the same laws on on. Um, motoring insurance in um, the Netherlands, for instance, and in there's quite a few countries in, in, in Europe the same. If a motorist hits a cyclist, automatically it's the motorist's fault, and they are then liable um, for their insurance costs, and then all sorts of legal ramifications come in because it's seen as well the cyclist is not the innocent party here, but is the weakest party. And you really ought to be looking out for cyclists much more than uh, just looking out for SUVs and for lorries and because they're the really vulnerable ones. And it's the same for pedestrian. This seems such a sensible law, um, from our point of view anyway, but when it was uh, even just mooted that uh, Brussels would, would bring this law into the UK in line with, with the Netherlands and Germany and other countries, there was such an incredible uproar in the mass media where people were saying, well, hang on, so if I knock into a cyclist their fault and they've run a red light and they and it's my fault this is just crazy so it led to such an uproar the government just dropped it and it, we need a bigger push from Europe to to bring this in so but this is the ready-made solution certainly in in this country that would would almost wouldn't solve the situation but it would make these kind of issues much, much uh, easier to, to resolve when it's just automatically the fault of the driver and then the driver has to prove, no, it wasn't. Whereas now it's automatically almost assumed to be the fault of the cyclist and the cyclist has to prove that the motorist did it. So this European uh, method of, of, of handling it would probably make motorists be on the lookout much, much more for cyclists and pedestrians because they are liable if they hit them. Now they can get off with it and they know it. Larry, any idea on, on what the laws are like there in Japan? Um, well, in regards to Japan, uh, as I don't, I'm not fluent uh, completely here yet, so I'm still kind of feeling my way around. But, um, no, and my opinion, I mean, I, I do have an opinion on London, though, and uh, Carlton, do correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I'm kind of hoping, and, and 
he's completely he's dead on when he talks about the situation in London, I think. And I'm kind of hoping that things start to turn around there. As uh, over the past five years, I believe there's been a huge swelling in the amount of cyclists that are actually on the road in London. And uh, I'm a big believer that uh, things will start to change. That once the numbers do increase, and you know, when people, I mean, if you educate your friends and family uh, that you're a cyclist and what we put up with and what we have to deal with on a daily basis, even just commuting on the road and our lives are put in danger on a daily basis, that when you make it personal for people, then they 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 might tend to behave themselves a little bit more appropriately when when driving down the road, and they might watch for cyclists a little more closely. I think. But uh, in regards to Tokyo down here, I mean, uh, I'm still kind of in awe because, again, the experience of cycling down here is completely different for me, at least as what, what it was in the UK. And I just don't have to watch out for the same kind of stuff. Uh, I don't have the same kind of behavior, uh, at least where I live. Maybe if I was living in a city, it would be a different situation. But uh, at least where I am, no, I don't, I don't experience the same thing at all. You know, I, I do my training in the evenings and after work I'll come home, I'll change, I'll get on my bike and I'll go for a ride and then I come home. And whenever I come home from a ride, my family inevitably asks me, how many people tried to kill you today? And, and in a way they're kind of joking, but at the same time, every day I have another story about a, a, a motorist who, who turned in front of me or pulled out in front of me or uh, changed lanes and forced me off the road every single day. And that... It, it's unusual that I come home and say, hey, I didn't have any problems with motorists today. And that's, I'm not running red lights, I'm not running stop signs, I'm, I'm signaling my turns, I'm doing everything that I can do to be as visible as possible, yet I still have a problem. My parents, as a matter of fact, they wish that I wasn't a cyclist because they think, and this is amazing to me, they think cycling is dangerous. They think that it's, it's as bad as, I mean, if you ask my dad, he'd probably tell you it's as bad as climbing Mount Everest. They think it's that dangerous to be on the road. So it, it's sort of a contrast between what you're talking about in Japan and what we have here in, in at least in L.A. It is, I prefer to ride, for instance, on the weekends early in the morning when there's nobody on the roads because I know that I'm going to actually be able to get in a good ride without having a run-in with a motorist. It's it's really unfortunate that it's that way. So it sure would be nice if if... All of us had laws, sort of like the ones that Carlton's talking about, where, where the motorist really knew from the get-go that if they have a problem with a cyclist, they're going to be liable and they're going to be held to account because right now they just aren't, and it's, it's really a sad situation. Now, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to also mention, you bring up a good point. Um, what what kind of makes me think of is back in London, and I, I really, uh, I'm curious about Carlton's opinion on this as well, is what I had noticed a lot is, of course, because of the numbers were swelling, uh, I guess up about five years ago, they had something come in called uh, uh, congestion charging. Was congestion charging, uh, Carlton? It's it's yeah, like yeah, ten. It's, cool, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like ten pounds to to uh, drive into the city, and at that point, um, a number of people, I guess, had started to ditch their cars and jump on bicycles. And you're getting a lot of newer cyclists on the road, and because of that, I think. Um, the image of cycling in London has kind of gone down because I do have to admit, when I was cycling to work, and and David, you talk about following the laws and stopping at red lights. I'm one of those kinds of commuters, and I don't care what's in front of me. I would just stop at every red light, even if there's no cars coming each another way. And the number of cyclists I would see who would just fly through those lights and pass me is 
is, you know, I would, I would count it about 60-70% of all cyclists would just pass me and I get very few actually stopping and backing me. So I don't think, uh, at least in London, in the cities, we're not putting out a good image at all times. So I don't think, uh, it, it's a two-way street really. I think we kind of have to uh, get our fellow cyclists, certain certain groups of them, to behave a little bit more on the road as well if we, we, if we wanted to be treated in the same manner, I think. So do you think that the motorists then are... are angry at us do you think that they're that they're that they've seen so many of us misbehave that that they feel that they can misbehave as well even though they're driving a vehicle that's two three four thousand pounds and we're you know including our bike maybe 200 do you think that that, that it's, it's sort of a backlash well, against I don't think, cyclists yeah i don't think it's so much as a backlash as more of um of when we try to to fight our fight and try to change laws or try to show what we go through, then it's just something for them to throw up in our face, I think, as opposed to them trying to get even or them getting angry at us. I think it just kind of it makes it more difficult for us to prove our case, so to speak, I think. So, so to close the circle on this subject, Carlton, do you think that that may be a little bit of what's going on here in the Cadden case? I think it's such a one-off. I really do. It, it, this this judge was just so off-beam that it, it's it's interesting for us all to talk about it and how many wider issues it brings up. But actually, in this individual case, it's just a nutty judge. He's come up with a nutty judgment, and it doesn't really indicate anything in a in a, in a wider process, and it will be overturned. But it, on in the wider aspect of of motorists in in the UK and in, in, by the sound of it in in the US as well. Sounds fantastic in Japan. I must go there. Um, it's a problem out there, and I'm a motorist too. And I, as I'm sure all of you who who are driving, which I'm sure you all are, you look out for cyclists uh, more than than your average driver. So when I'm driving, I'm not just looking out for the the huge lorries and uh, the SUVs and the and the other smaller cars out there. I'm also looking for cyclists because I'm one myself. And we just need to get that into the society of, of and this is why the, the EU, the fifth uh, EU motoring directive is successful in countries like the Netherlands. Because even though countries like Germany have got a far higher per capita car ownership, people actually use them less and they do use their bikes. And because they use their bikes, they know what it's like to be a cyclist and they're looking out for cyclists. So even on a on a, a, a small uh, residential road, you don't need the massive amount of traffic calming that you get in the UK because on continental Europe, they just behave better towards cyclists and towards other road users. It just seems to be much more, what a better word, civilized. And I think in America and in the UK, we have much more aggression. And that's aggression against other car drivers, against everybody out there apart from yourself and your little pod. And unfortunately, because we're the most vulnerable, pedestrians and cyclists are the ones getting killed. Um, but it's just a, it's a whole society problem here. And uh, it, it needs society to, to solve that problem. And one of the ways to do it is perhaps by making people liable when they do cause these accidents. Good point. Okay, real good. One other, one other thing I wanted to talk about that is around the same subject that we were just talking about is a school district here in the United States in Lawrence, Kansas. And they've decided that all of the children who are in K 
kindergarten, first, and second grade will not be allowed to ride their bikes to school or their scooters because last year they had a fatality where a six-year-old was hit and killed on her way to school. And the the situation there was that the motorist hadn't seen the six-year-old because there was a shrub that was that hadn't been trimmed and the visibility just wasn't there so that she could be seen and she was struck and she was killed and as a result they've decided that now unless you're in the third grade or higher you can't ride your bike or your scooter to school no matter how close do you live you could even live next door just one block away I wonder, is this an overreaction? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that the parents should be regulating, the schools should be regulating? Is it even something we should be concerned with as, as cyclists? Because, you know, of course, these aren't necessarily cyclists per se. They're just children on their bikes. But but what are your thoughts on it? Uh, Larry? Certainly, certainly. I, I feel that it uh, it is definitely a, a knee-jerk reaction, and I don't, uh, I don't particularly uh, agree with schools being able to set... Um, you know, rules for everything to try and protect us. I think sometimes, especially growing up, that, um, you know, certain experiences that you go through uh, are beneficial and they help teach you. So why not allow them to to experience cycling uh, at a younger age, uh, especially to school? Because, I mean, I had fond memories of of cycling to school around those times, at least as far back as I can think. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think in today's day and age that many many people we they try to really protect us from from these kinds of things and i, I think it's it's an overreaction myself i suppose what you were what you were starting to say was that here in the united states we're really big on personal freedoms and that and that uh, uh, our rights are something that we always talk about a lot as as being very important and i think that while that's true we're also very big these days on knee jerk reactions reactions where the government steps in and and tries to regulate everything from from safety to just bad and rude behavior and so knee-jerk reactions are very very common and unfortunately our rights are being re- eroded as a result and while I don't want to make this a political discussion I, I do find that parenting has also changed at least in this generation I know that 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 my kids friends parents don't impose the same sort of rules that that my wife and I uh, impose on our kids, and uh, I suppose that you know there, there's a phrase here in the U.S. You know we're we're sort of Aussie and Harriet parents, and that comes from the old 1950s TV show where it was sort of this ideal dream family where where everybody was always happy and the and the kids always followed the rules and and the parents always had very conservative rules for their kids, and I suppose my wife and I try to be like that. The problem here is I think that the school district is saying, well, you parents aren't taking care of your children, so we're going to take care of your children for you. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's a bit of a, of a slippery slope. Where does it end is the question. Um, if you are silly enough to send your child to school on a bike without a helmet, for instance, or without the proper skills of navigating their way to school or knowing how to ride safely, um, I don't know. That makes you a bad parent, but should the should the school district be acting as the parent for you? I, I personally don't like that. Uh, Carlton, are you seeing things like this happen in the U.S. and and what? Excuse me, in the U.K. and what's your what's your reaction to this? Oh, for sure, these these things come in. It, it often tends to be not so much a school district. That that's really highly surprising that that they've taken that step. But it's often that the headmaster, the headmistress, the the, the boss of that particular school school will say, right, you can't bring 
uh, bikes in. You can't cycle into school. Um, but if, if this is an eject reaction to, for instance, I mean, this, is, this sounds like a very sad case of a child being knocked over, well, I would just throw it back and, and say there must be other sad examples of children dying in cars who've been brought to school. Mm -hmm. uh, children die. It's really sad, but they do. And uh, to, to wrap every other child up in the whole of a school district, in the whole of a country, because of a child who's been killed for whatever reason, it, it just it, you can't go on like that. You can't have a society like that because you will start legislating for every single move they make. Now, that is a slippery slope, and if cycling is being legislated against here, well, that needs to be fought tooth and nail, because cycling probably has more, as we know, has more health benefits for that child, has more anti-obesity benefits for that child than any amount of let's protect children from um, these nasty cars that might knock them down and kill them, which they sometimes sadly do. But we, we can't do blanket uh, bans on, on any form of um, exercise of getting to school. Well, then I guess what we're saying is that we're all sort of libertarians. We think that the government's overreacting a bit here and that we don't want to see them legislate just because, uh, just to protect uh, one individual. If we get all of these schools to get kids cycling to school, it will be not only beneficial for those particular children, it'll be beneficial for the whole of society because those streets, those roads will be better for the, the people who are using them because traffic speeds will be lower, it'll be more pleasant to, to be around those schools and that'll filter out the, the whole city. Well, that's a good point. And I think it's a good place to wrap up, and that is that let's get more people cycling and let's make it make it safer for cyclists out there on the road. I, I want to thank both of you for participating today. I think we've had a, a really good conversation and a good discussion, and I'm hoping that our listeners will will discuss all of this with us. And why don't we tell our listeners where we can be contacted? Carlton, tell them about your website and how they can send you email and listen to your podcast. Well, for sure, bikebiz.com is probably the easiest uh, route in, even though the, the podcast isn't on there. But if they're on iTunes, then it's Cycling News and Views. If the Floyd Landers thing, just type in Floyd Landers petition into Google, you'll, you'll get uh, my stuff. And I'll, of course, put that in the show notes. I'll put the link to the, the petition in the show notes. And an email address if they want to contact you? Uh, Carlton Reed, that's all one word, R-E-I-D, at mac.com. Very good. And Larry, tell us about your site and your podcast and how the listeners can contact you. Certainly. Uh, most directly is, uh, again, through my website is uh, just crank.com. It's crank with two Ks. And uh, by any means, uh, email, again, at podcast at crank.com. Certainly uh, any flames can be sent that way. And, uh, yeah, certainly not a problem. Thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. And, of course, I'm David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast, and that's at www thefredcast.com and you can send me email anytime at thefredcast at gmail.com gentlemen want to thank you both for participating today we will do this again in just a couple of weeks until then for all the listeners get out there and ride Crank Cycling Life and News, a podcast concoction of bike-related stories, news, advice, and opinions that have been harvested from the social news website crank.com. That's crank, C-R-A-N-K-K.com. So why not stop by, vote on, discuss, and submit your current cycling news and stories today.
Fredcast Cycling Podcast is a weekly show devoted to the latest cycling news, gear, gadgets, gizmos, and components. The Fredcast is devoted to helping recreational and endurance cyclists and cycling fans learn more about the sport, increase their skills, master new techniques, take on new challenges, and learn about all of the latest technology and components. In addition, we cover upcoming rides, ride reviews, and the latest sites of interest on the internet. Learn more at our website at www.thefredcast.com. The Fredcast Cycling Podcast, helping you find new ways to enjoy the ride. I really feel we're breaking through. I really feel we're getting in at the top now and we're rooting out the evil ones. Ah, which pizza? Yeah, well, the normal Italian pizza. Margherita. First, users of this marvelous instrument of pleasure and transport, which is also a symbol of freedom. Phil Liggett, Ivan Basso, Jean-Marie Leblanc. They've all been on Cycling News and Views podcast. Get it where you normally get your podcasts from or subscribe on iTunes. Cycling News and Views. It's got cycling, it's got news, and it's got views.